Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. My name is Colby Sinusel, and today we're speaking with Manny Medina, the former founder of Caramark and current chairman of Sixterra, as part of our Leaders, Legends, Luminaries, and Visionaries podcast series. Uh, with that, Manny, thank you for joining me today. Hey, thank you, Colby. It's a great honor for me to be here. I mean, I've known you for many, many years, so uh, it's great for us to be sharing uh, a little bit of our history together. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love these because, you know, even though I've known you for as long as we have, um, I've never really heard the Terramark story, so uh, I'm really kind of excited to, to, to get into that. But before we do, um, just a few other questions. So after successfully selling your former company Terramark to Verizon in, in 2011, rather than retire, you form Medina Capital, and you remain active in the data center space today as chairman of Sixterra, among some of the other ventures you're working on. My, my first question is, what do you attribute your strong worth ethic? work ethic too. Oh, so listen, uh, Kobe, uh, I was very fortunate that uh, my, my parents, my mother, uh, my, uh, my father had the fortitude to put me and my sister on a boat when we were 13 years old uh, and, and, and brought us here to the United States, thank God, because if not, you know, we would not be doing this podcast right now. <laughs> I would, my life would have been totally different. And what I saw them do when we arrived here was really work their behinds off. I mean, basically, my mother had two jobs as a hotel maid, uh, peeling shrimps to today. She still doesn't eat shrimp because she, say, she says she still smells the shrimp. Uh, my dad drove a cab for 16 hours a day, and I saw them. Uh, and that kind of work ethic got us through this early years and that really was uh that's how my work ethic started and it really 100 percent attributed to them right and uh one of the things that was really important is that we were very very poor uh at that time uh in in a way that is kind of difficult to imagine today and uh you know and my goal was i didn't want to be poor so basically you know i wanted i began working when i was as soon as i arrived and that i attributed to that it's, it's funny that uh, I also don't come from a, a, a wealth, and, and as a result, I, I also perceive myself as having a very strong worth ethic, but it's interesting how people who didn't come from wealth kind of, because of that, have this really strong work ethic. I always get concerned, quite honestly, because I'm in a better situation today than I was when I was a kid, that my kids today aren't going to have that same strong worth ethic that, that, that because they don't have the same you know, struggle, if you will. Do you get concerned about that? How would your kids turn out? There's no question that it's a concern. I mean, I, I have, I'm blessed because I have two kids and they both have, a, in different way. My son is a musician. Uh, he lives in Nashville, but he, he has worked harder than anybody to try to, to make it. And he's actually made it. My daughter works uh, uh, with me and she works harder than me. So I, I honestly believe that a lot of it has to do with you and the example that you set. I think that a lot of parents get so blinded by the trappings, you know, that they, and they want to show their, they, they, they want to live vicariously through their kids. And instead of showing the kids that work ethic from the very beginning and show them and, 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 and infecting them with it in a, in a good way, I think that they just kind of get trapped. Uh, uh, so, so I think a lot of it has to do with you. You're now either 69 or 70. I don't actually know exactly how old you are, but I know you're somewhere in that, in that area. Um, and you're still going at it. You're, you're doing a podcast with us right now. 
where's the energy come from? How do you kind of go about finding the day, the, the, the energy to do this day in and day out still after all these years? Yeah, look, I love, I've always had this incredible amount of energy. And if I'm doing something that I like, like for example, I wouldn't be doing this podcast with you. I mean, I'm blessed enough at this stage of my career that I do what I want to do. So I wouldn't be doing this podcast with you if I didn't appreciate you, if I didn't appreciate our relationship, if I didn't know that. And it's fun. I mean, for me to be able to have a conversation, get to know you a little bit better along the way. So that energy comes from within. It's an energy that I've, I, I, I deploy in whatever I'm doing in a very passionate way. I'm a passionate individual. I think you need to be passionate, right? In life, whatever you're doing, you need to be passionate. And I'm something that I recommend to people, be passionate about whatever you're doing. And I'm blessed that my passion is something that I deploy in ways that I like uh, doing. So, so it really uh, is something that it comes naturally. You're right. You're in a position where you get to have a little bit more choice in terms of what you do. And, and certainly being chairman is very different than being CEO of company so that also kind of frees you up to be a bit more strategic and kind of choose where you insert yourself in certain things of course which is also what i really love right i mean i you know i've operated you've known me as an operator but what in, my, my real passion is not really operating I, I i have i'm very blessed that i have a great team i mean nelson fonseca the ceo of sixtera has been with me for over 20 years uh, the ceo of appgate Barry field has been with me for well over 16 years so i have a great team uh, but what I really love is kind of looking at the forest and looking at the big picture and strategically where do we move and how do we get there and stuff like that. And I really, really enjoy that. That for me is not work. So you mentioned this a little bit, but you were born in Cuba and you uh, immigrated with your family to Miami in 1965 when I think you were 13 years old. And later you attend and graduate from Florida Atlantic University in 1974. Um, what did you major in and what was the plan coming out of college? So look, I mean, it's funny because uh, I'm not a CPA by devotion. Uh, my goal was very early on to get out of business to the business world. I, you know, I began devouring kind of uh, high finance novels, and I just wanted to get out into the business world, right? I didn't know exactly how, but I just wanted to get out there. Uh, I really am more of a people kind of marketing, uh, but what happened was I didn't want to graduate from college and be selling Xerox machines or barrels computers at the time, right? Because some of my friends had graduated before. So I, I actually said, well, let me go to law school. I didn't really want to be a lawyer either. And then the idea came to me. I said, you know, if I graduate with a CPA, I'm going to have, you know, credibility, which is really what I need to have getting out at an early stage. So I did. I pivoted and my last year and a half in, in, in college, I decided, let me go out become a CPA, uh, and, and, and of course, uh, I, I joined Pricewaterhouse, which was uh, really the genesis of my business. Uh, and I've always said, Kobe, that the best two decisions I ever made in my life was one to become a CPA and go to work for Pricewaterhouse, and the other one was to quit, in that order, right? Because the, the CPA and the Pricewaterhouse taught me an excellence of work that has lasted the rest of my life. Um, on the other hand, I was very anxious to get out into the business world in, uh, in, and, and, and take advantage of all the opportunities uh, existing. So a few things there. One is, by the way, Manny, I don't think anyone becomes a CPA by devotion. I'm, I'm not sure that that person... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. So nothing um, wrong with it. On the contrary, it's a great career. <laughs> the, the second thing, though, that you say is that getting that great job early on and in, 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 in the lessons you learn and the people you meet 
um, it could serve as a springboard for so many people in terms of the next thing that they do. For me, it was working at Thomas Weisel. So at Thomas Weisel, when I was 22 years old, uh, I got to cut my teeth, if you will. I got to understand what it was to be in equity research. I got to work with some fantastic people. And really, it was a combination of what I learned and the people that I met that, that created my next opportunity, which, by the way, you'll appreciate this, was with Vic Grover. So Vic ended up coming over to, to, uh, to Thomas Weisel at the time. And then when he ended up going to uh, what was Merriman Curhan Ford to go into banking, uh, he, they, they recruited me to go in there and, and serve as the equity research analyst and, and, and the rest is history. But it's, it's interesting about those key jobs right out of school yeah, having such an impact. 100% COVID. I mean, the reason I joined Pricewaterhouse, Pricewaterhouse at the, at the time it was the big eight, uh, basically. They've been cut uh, in half. But basically, uh, I started Price because Price realized uh, early on the importance of Latin America. So they recruited. Uh, myself and a few others, very small team, and created something called Pricewaterhouse Lat, Latin American Department. And when you typically started with one of those big accounting firms, all you did was grunt work. Uh, Pricewaterhouse did the reverse. They actually gave us uh, business cards, they gave us credit cards, and they basically said, go tell everybody how great Pricewaterhouse is. Something else that they did is, is which I was very anxious to travel, and I traveled all over Latin America with Price. And so very early on, at, at, at the same way you were 22, when I was 21, 22, I was traveling to Santiago, Chile and doing all this exotic work. And that it really was the, the foundation of my business later on. So in the mid to late 70s, you're doing this. And then in 1980, you start a consulting business that you named Terramark that I believe evolved into a, a real estate development company. How did you go from Pricewaterhouse to a consulting business and then that consulting business being focused on real estate development and kind of like what's the bridge yeah so uh in the late seven when i when i when i quit price i actually started with an, with a partner of mine he used to work for deloitte uh, uh a firm uh, but the the focus of the firm where well, there was a lot of money the same way that a lot of money is coming into miami now there's been waves of this amount of money coming through the years and in the late 70s, there was a very, very big wave of money, the petrodollars, there was just all kinds of money, and people investing in real estate. With the credibility at a very young age of having the CPA and Pricewaterhouse, we began a practice kind of advising investors coming into South Florida to mm -hmm. invest in real estate. But the, our, 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 our niche was, uh, hey, listen, we will never take a penny from the, from the property. We're going to charge you a fee, but we're going to be your eyes and ears. You live in Santiago, or you live in Peru, or you live in Bogota, but we're going to be your eyes and ears here as a, as a very credible extension of you as a CPA. That's, that was the genesis of the business. The business flourished. I had a lot of contacts by then. And uh, of course, the vast majority of it was buying real estate and taught us the real estate business. And that led into begin playing around with buying properties ourselves and, you know, and continue and then led into development and get led into bigger development and really just totally 100% focus on developing uh, a lot of uh, both commercial, mostly commercial, but residential and, became, and was a developer all through the, uh, all through that uh, uh, 80s uh, uh, and, and, uh, and uh, actually all the way through the, uh, to the 90s. Uh, and then, uh, uh, so that's how, uh, that's how the pivot was. It's amazing is that, um, in all these stories, in terms of people that start their own company, the, the biggest thing is just taking the leap of faith. It's, it's leaving the paycheck behind that at this time you're getting from Price Waterhouse 
and saying, I want to be my own boss. I, I have a business plan to which I can start from, but it seems like in so many of these success situations that where you start with your business ends up becoming obviously so much more, but you had to have the guts to, to just go out there. And I guess my question to you then is, you know, what's the advice you would have for anyone who wants to start their own business today? Would, do you think that it's still, that's the best way to being successful or, you know, how, just your thoughts on well, look, that? I mean, I, I, I have a duty. So I spend a lot of time talking to young uh, kids today, kind of, kind of about to graduate, get their MBAs about this, about, you know, about inter- everybody at the end of the day. Uh, and, and the one thing that, that they all ask, what's the secret, right? What's the secret? And then well, how did you do it? And how do you do it? Something that I, I want to know the secret too, Manny. Yeah. So well, I got to tell you, I want to tell you the way I start my, my conversation with them. There is no secret. <laughs> that's the that's the disappointment. There is no secret, right? It's like, I, and the way I say it is, you know, look, look at the weight loss industry. You know, there are billions of dollars spent every year in the weight loss industry. Is there a secret? No, eat less and exercise more. But basically, it's very difficult to do. What I'm saying is, so what I tell everybody, it's very difficult for you to be tentative about it. I'm not saying that you've got to quit your job today, but you're certainly at a point you've got to make a strategic decision and say, I'm going to be all in. I just did this for a kid whom I've known since he's 14. He's now 28. He's done a great job. And he was kind of teetering between, he was actually had a huge job with Boston Consulting. But on the side, he started a car website, which is now blossomed and boomed. And my decision was, you've got to go all in. You know, it's very difficult for you to do this tentative. Now, if you do that, you gotta be able to have a very high risk tolerance because you, mm-hmm. it's, it's risky. You gotta be able to know that and, and have the ability for you to be able to pivot because if you, if you, if you, and that's really one of the most difficult things. How long do you actually stay on a course? And is there a point that you really become delusional <laughs> or, or not? And there's no, there's no real secret to it, but you have it inside of you. you. If you're determined, if you're passionate about it and you know and believe in what you're doing, then you need to go for it. Because what's, what's the downside? You're always going to be able to get a job. You know, the downside is not doing it. That really is what I tell them. The downside is, now, you, it could be not, that doesn't mean that you need to start as a, as a founder of a company. It could be that you're doing that in a bigger organization, on a bigger job, and, you know, just kind of succeeding that way. There's nothing wrong with that either. For me, that was never an option, basically. And I do recommend strongly, and I see it today. It's crazy, this whole COVID thing, how the, 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 the myriad of, 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 uh, of entrepreneurs that we're dealing with today, particularly as the flood of come down here to Miami, right? So I think you gotta be passionate about it. You gotta make that jump. You gotta take the risk and you gotta realize and say, hey, if the worst happens, am I gonna be living under a bridge? The answer is probably no, right? The answer is you're gonna be able to do something else. Yeah, you'll figure it out. Have confidence in yourself. So the first 15 years, you, you largely focus on, on office development. So call 1980 to the mid-90s. But sometime in the mid-90s, you, you pivot the business. Um, can you talk to us about that pivot and, and what drove it? Yeah, so in the, uh, at the end of, uh, uh, in the late, something else that you learn from is kind of a very difficult times, right? So I've had two periods of very difficult times financially after my career began going like this uh, in the at the very late late 80s very early 90s my financial world came crumbling down because of reasons that have nothing to do with me development uh, by its nature you're as good as your last deal right so basically and you know the rpc there was a lot of a lot of financial stuff 
And I ended up, I had a very great partner, a Lebanese partner who was in the Middle East. Uh, and uh, I ended up, uh, Kuwait was going to be liberated, so I ended up going to the Middle East. Uh, right, I was actually in Saudi Arabia waiting for Kuwait to be liberated. We went to Kuwait immediately after the liberation. Uh, and so while I was there in that period, it was a period that for me personally was a very uh, transformational period, not something that I would look, like to do again, but basically what, it, what I, I've always been interested in technology. And in the very early 90s, I began getting fascinated with the internet, just began getting fascinated while I was there during the period, just when the internet was just beginning to be commercially kind of uh, uh, feasible, right? And I became fascinated by it. By the time I came back, I wanted to play. I always, I've always thought that if you stand in front of waves, you're going to get wet, no matter how, no matter what happens. So I'm trying to, even today, I think about, you know, what is the next wave? I've always thought about that. Rashi, what is this wave that is coming? And I just felt inside of me that the internet was going to be this thing that was transformational. So not knowing really a lot about technology in that, at that time, I began by doing what I knew how to do best, which is basically build the infrastructure where the internet sits. And that was my first foray into the, uh, into the, into the internet uh, world in the, uh, in the late 90s. Right? And was that in the Middle East? That was the first? No, 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 no. The Middle East, we just it, it taught me more. You know, there's no, uh, there's no tech support, so you need to become more yourself, more able. So I, okay. I, I spent a lot more time in the technology side of things. So that, that was just a foundation. Uh, it was here. When I started, it was here in the U.S. when I was back that I began then playing with, uh, with building uh, telecom hotels. So you're already in, you're in real estate development, you're, you're learning about the internet on a personal level and, you, and you're, you're interested in it and you kind of meld those two things together where you take what you do know, which is development and you take what you're becoming passionate about, which is the internet and, and you find the middle ground, which is at that time building these, these telecom carrier hotels. Um, and, and that's how you kind of start to pivot the business. But one of the projects that you bid on was to construct what, what now is known as the, as the NAP of the Americas, the, the network access point of the Americas. Um, can you tell us what made that project so special? Because I mean, that's, yeah, so, I think, what most people think of when they think of the legacy Terramark. Yeah, so look, and there's no question that the NAP of the Americas was the most important thing that we did. Uh, almost cost us our <laughs> lives, but basically, but it was definitely without a doubt. So, and that's really, and the, the way we jumped all over this, in, in, in the year 98, 99, which is when the NAP began being articulated, people didn't really comprehend what we were talking about. But we did. We kind of saw Latin America, uh, there were tens of, during the Google days of the late 90s, remember the global crossings and you know all this, there were billions and billions of dollars of fiber optic laid all over Latin America to light up Latin America. It was not lit up. And basically, all that massive amount of, of, of infrastructure guaranteed that the, that the surge of utilization of, 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 of uh, infrastructure was going to be through the moon, right? But actually, the traffic was going to increase significantly. So, and that was, it, it didn't take a genius to figure that out with all the billions of dollars and you were lighting up all these major capitals that up to that moment didn't have any fiber optic. Mm -hmm. So, it was very difficult at the time for you to exchange traffic, meaning if you, like for example, we did a test one time, if you send an email in Panama from the eighth floor of an office building to the ninth floor of the same office building, it would take 17 hops to either Virginia, <laughs> it took, either Virginia or Chicago, and then come back up to the ninth floor. It was just not, didn't work. So the industry, 
came together, led by Global Crossing, and said, we need a new exchange point. We basically saw the potential of the Napa of the Americas. The way I, the analogy that I used to use, Colby, was, hey, if I had the opportunity to own Miami International Airport in the, 19, the early 1920s, would I have owned it? Yes, right? So, so we saw it. Everybody, the industry didn't care because all they really wanted was a neutral exchange point. Uh, and in other words, they didn't want a carrier to be the authority. All the other exchange points were controlled at the time by carriers. So we saw this and I said to myself, you know what, if we're able to, to win this, and then this is where the Terramark model really started, right? And then at the time, uh, Equinix was already uh, uh, going, but I began to say, if we exchange traffic here, you know, it really makes a lot of sense for you to put your infrastructure here. And then if you put your infrastructure here, you know, we basically uh, uh, should provide you a lot of other services. So the model started because of the Napa of the Americas. So we fought very hard to, uh, to, uh, to win it, uh, and, and we did. We, we won, we won. When, what happened, all these companies had signed an MOU saying that they would bring their, their networks and terminate their networks into the ex new exchange point, the new network access point of the Americas. And that, that we thought that that would be incredibly valuable in the future. So you end up winning the uh, contract to bid the NAP of the Americas, and, and I believe that you won that partly in partnership with Telcordia, but, but the timing is interesting, right? As you're finishing this project uh, in 2001, the, the world starts to kind of crash around you. Uh, the internet bubble bursts. You, know, you made reference to this already, but, but how did you survive? Yeah, so no question about COVID. This is one of the most difficult uh, uh, things that I've ever uh, done. So my CFO at the time, Jose Segrera and myself, uh, we were very 100% very convinced that the Napa of the Americas was gonna be incredibly valuable, right, eventually. We just needed to survive this period. And the period, like you said, the bubble burst, the telecommunications industry were all filing bankruptcy, and then September 11th on top of it. So, and we were a public company, uh, there was no funding anywhere. I mean, Wall Street was out to, to lunch. And, uh, and so we basically, uh, uh, the, one of the first things that I did is, I, and when I speak to kids today, I tell them, we were talking a little bit earlier about going all in and being, so what I made a decision is, listen, I cannot do both. I still have some real estate holdings. So I liquidated everything that I had at the time and I went all in, literally went all in and, you know, kind of in Terramark. I also begged, borrowed, uh, pleaded. I had made a lot of money for people before. So I went back to all of them uh, just to get rid of me. Uh, they would... Uh, help me do something and for us look we had many people trying to come in and save us but it, it was diluting ourselves to the point that it wasn't worth it so we were not going to do that uh, so it was just basically struggling trying to live week by week and, 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 and everybody here on top of that we were fighting uh, just this huge incredible battle with Bell South and uh, anyway so it was a matter of whether uh, when not if Luckily, we survived. I mean, one of the funniest stories that we have is going to, to, to Wall Street. I mean, I would, Jose and I would get off at LaGuardia f flying uh, economy. And then, uh, you know, at the time, it wasn't like today uh, where we had this technology, right? We basically, I was, uh, we're carrying around a 40 pound uh, uh, laptop and a 40 pound projector. And basically, <laughs> and we would go and we would literally pitch the cab driver from LaGuardia to, <laughs> to anybody that would listen to us. So it was just a very, very, very big struggle, but we just needed to make it, 
you know, make it and make it because we believe of the value of the nap, so we just wouldn't wouldn't give up. This is a you know, there are many angles of this story that are funny and, and another time I'm happy to, to share a lot of them, but it just take too much time. But that's basically what we did. We just wouldn't take no for an answer, and we just were determined until we finally uh, were able to uh, to uh, to come out of. It's wild. I mean, a few things there. Number one is that um, you you did you went all in. You had other real estate holdings. Uh, from what I'll call legacy Terramark, which you liquidate and use that to fund the new business model, which is really based at that time around the nap of the Americas. Uh, And secondly, I didn't appreciate you were actually public already, uh, which creates a whole other set of scrutiny uh, that you're doing this in in, in the public view, um, which, which actually makes it much more difficult when you're going through situations like that. So that that was much more difficult, but on the other hand, it helped us. Because it was very difficult, no question, that aspect of it, because there was certain amount, you know, people, there are certain people that did believe and we were able to bring in equity in a public way that we couldn't have brought it in if we were a private mm-hmm. company. And I think finding, funding ourselves private could perhaps would have been even more difficult. So. Oh, interesting. Okay. So one of the more unique aspects of the Miami facility is the federal government business. And, and you mentioned September 11th. Um, but did but did the federal business come kind of already that was going to be part of the model when this project was being put together and RFP'd by Global Crossing? Or did that come after and, and, and maybe September 11th played a part in that? Yeah, so absolutely the latter. Uh, we had no federal business in our business plan at all. It wasn't even, we didn't even contemplate it. What happened was that as sad as those towers being hit on September 11th, if those planes would have hit just up the street at 60 Hudson, which is the main exchange point, it would have been chaos for the way that the government communicates. Remember, it was very early on. So what happened was the government went out and said, at that point, we already had a, a very big critical mass of carriers. We already had all kinds. Of, so the, the, the government went out to places like us and said, you know what? We need to distribute our infrastructure because we, are we, the U.S. federal government, can never put ourselves in a position where our infrastructure is so vulnerable that if somebody blows up one of these exchange points, you know, our, 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 our infrastructure may be secure in a mountain somewhere in Utah, but the traffic is being exchanged in a very vulnerable place. So they basically did the distribution. We, at that point, obviously that was actually that was one of the things that helped us the most, because basically at that point, them coming in, uh, it was very credible for us to have the federal government as a customer, and that helped us with enterprises, and that was a big part of it. So September 11th, as sad as it was, uh, actually was very helpful to us as a company. Oh, interesting. So the business starts to take on a lot of success, um, and then you, you make a 10-year run from 2001 until 2011. But then in 2011, you guys elect to sell Terramark to Verizon. And at that time, you're operating 13 data centers, uh, including you know, some other notable ones, such as the facility in Culpeper. Um, why sell? And, and conversely, why do you think that Verizon bought it? Yeah, so look, we saw we were a public company. We were, very, we were doing very well at the time. And it was something that we considered uh, long and hard. I think the more we kept saying no, the higher the price got and we were not looking to sell the company but basically uh there comes a point you know you have a lot of investors and you know uh, you I, i myself and a lot of the team members have been working very hard and when the price got to a point we just it would it would have been irresponsible of us to say no uh, at the time so we sold for a very good price uh why did verizon buy it i think there were three broad points first of all is they loved our cloud 
and you know we were we at the point uh, we had a very robust uh, enterprise cloud that we had launched in 2008, and it was very very successful at the time. They liked our infrastructure. I actually uh, uh, flew with uh, Verizon CEO and their whole team and went to Culpeper, obviously Napa the Americas. You know we were building in Amsterdam, so they liked they liked our infrastructure. So that's number two, and number three, they loved our cyber practice. Our cyber practice was very advanced, something that we had been doing since the early 2000s. I mean, we went into cyber when cyber wasn't even called cyber, it was InfoSec, right? So basically, and we went in there, and we, by the time that we, we had one of the most advanced cyber practices of anybody. Forget about the data center industry, just basically in, in, in the industry. So I think those three, three factors uh, was the, the thing that actually uh, got them to, uh, to really wanting to buy uh, uh, us. Yeah, at some point you have a fiduciary duty to, to sell a company if the price is so high, even whether you want to or not, or regardless of where you may see the company in five or 10 years from now. And then the second thing from Verizon is, it is interesting how these telcos, and it wasn't just Verizon, it was AT&T and CenturyLink and even others who just had this very broad strategy for how they were going to participate in cloud. And really, by the way, in 2011, it's really before AWS gets off the ground in any meaningful way. If you look, if you take a look at uh, at the at the magic quadrant at the time, AWS and Terabyte were right on the same yeah. <laughs> on the enterprise cloud. So. That's wild. So five years after you sell Terramark, uh, you partner with BC Partners, which is a private equity firm out of uh, I believe uh, the UK, and Longview to buy CenturyLink's data center business, which I believe largely at that time consisted of the Savis portfolio that CenturyLink had bought right around the same time that you sold Terramark to Verizon. Uh, you know, I guess this, the first question is, is why get back in? Yeah, so look, we believe Sixtera is a phenomenal opportunity at the time. Now, it wasn't even called Sixtera because they had no name. But when I saw, I, we knew the Savis assets well. I mean, you know, I knew Phil Keon, I knew, I, I competed against them, and the assets were extremely well-maintained assets, and they were great assets. So, first of all, um, that was one thing. Two is, if you had, you had a portfolio of data centers around the world, um, that would be very, very difficult to replicate, and it would be very, it would take a long time. Uh, you had an opportunity, you had a demoralized uh, sales force because basically it's an inherent conflict for this, the problem with these big carriers is their number one priority is to sell their network. And the colo aspect of the business becomes totally not important. So the, the, the colo sales force was really demoralized. They were more like order takers, right? And so you had to demoralize, you had good assets. And we strongly 100% believe, this is the big early innings still, for the data center industry. We believe that what's happening in the digitization of the world is just early innings. And basically, so we felt that if we create, if we took this company, used our experience, shake it up, you know, restructure it, set it up, that it will be a great opportunity uh, as it's turning out to be, right? I mean, basically, so, so that, and for me personally, you know, it was a, a big deal. And, and it was a, a, a deal that, that had a lot of, a lot of potential upside, uh, and it wasn't really just the money. Just I like doing big deals, and I like creating and creating all this stuff. So the team got together and I said, you know, this is a great opportunity. We were doing really well in the sense of investing in on our own, partly our own capital. We had raised the fund, and but it was just an opportunity to just go to a whole different level, right? Yeah, you did. I mean, this was a, an even much bigger transaction than than ter what the size of Terramark was at the time. I think that this had over fifty some odd data centers, and I guess. You know, the, the question here, though, is do you see the same opportunity for Sixterra 
that you did for Terramark. In other words, if Terramark had stayed a, an independent company, they'd, they'd have a business plan similar to what that is for Six Terra, or is, is there a different angle, if you will, to this? I think, look, I think that the, 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 the industry has matured from the, from the uh, Terramark days. I think one of the things that is more important is that, that Six Terra is more of a pure data center play. Now, we are always very innovative in data centers, like for example, our bare metal, all our, our exchange, our digital exchange, all of these are great differentiators. But I believe that Six Terra is a lot more pure in the sense of everything related to the data center. We don't have the cyber business, we don't have the managed services business, we don't have the hosting. And I believe the industry, that's where the industry is going. And as you, as you digitize the rest of the infrastructure of the world, I think the need for that will continue to grow exponentially. And this is why all our peers you know, are, are doing what they're doing, right? So I believe Sixteras opportunity is bigger, but in a different way. Yeah, it's interesting is that in Terramark, you mentioned in 2008, you started, um broadening the products that getting into more what we'll call generically managed services and there'd always been some type of security component to what you guys were doing um and 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 even with six terra there's a there's a bare metal component and to your point you look at equinix with their what they refer to as digital infrastructure services which today is predominantly their bare metal solution um you were ahead of the curve uh back in 2008 and 9 and 10 and to some degree what you're seeing with six terra is an extension of that that similar strategy to what you started in those later years of Terramark. Yeah, it's 100%. And listen, we started, it's funny when Equinix, which is a great company, by the way, uh, bought their bare metal, uh, they paid 380 million. This is something we created organically. We be, the, the moment that we, we Sixtera hadn't even closed yet, we were already working on all this, on our exchange point, etc. Because what it is, is what we do is we want to be the ones that really facilitate all these large government agencies and enterprises to to buy the infrastructure, right? In a way that is seamless. Uh, I believe that you're going to see a significant, you're seeing it already. Uh, Frost and Sullivan in a recent report put that 48% of their customers had already said that they're migrating apps away from the cloud into infrastructure. The cloud right now, particularly as you look at AI and some of these other apps, it doesn't work well. It's not designed for that. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting the cloud is not going to grow, uh, continue to grow, but I do believe that the infrastructure that we're providing with the bare metal and the co-location and the ease of you being able to point and click and consume that with the same ease and you spinning off VMs, I think that'll make it a very, very compelling uh, uh, strategy for us. It's happening right now. Uh, for for Sixtera and for our customer base. Well, it'll be exciting to see um, how, how Sixtera progresses going forward. But as we're coming to the conclusion here of our of our podcast, I, I need some advice from you. So uh, we're going to start to wind it down a little bit. But Manny, as a sell side analyst, I just lost CoreSight. I lost Cyrus One. Uh, I lost QTS earlier this year. You know, you, you, you've been a man who re, who's reinvented himself a few different times throughout your career. What's your advice for a sell side analyst who just lost some of his key names? What do I do? Well, listen, to begin with, it's time you launch coverage on us. I mean, you know, you're now have all this, <laughs> you have all this time in your hand. What are you doing? Right. So basically, no, but all kidding aside, Kobe, look, I, I, I talk about this with young folks all the time. And I will tell you, I think there's two broad areas here. If I, I mean, I am fascinated by blockchain. I'm fascinated by the opportunity of blockchain. I believe everybody, today is a hype cycle, right? I mean, you remember the hype cycle of the internet the mm -hmm. same way that I did, right? So basically, so, but I believe there's just so many opportunities. 
of what we just early innings. You talk about waves. I mean, every wave that this is a major wave that you cannot stop. Right, basically, if you think about what's happening, not just, I mean, forget about Bitcoin and whether it's going to be worth 20,000 or 200,000, I don't know. But the blockchain technology itself is revolutionary. And I think it's going to change every aspect of our life, no different than the internet do. So I would be consuming, if I were you, consuming and learning. And, you know, and if you would leave, if you were going to leave your sales side, get into an early startup that, that actually uh, gets into this incredible uh, future uh, that has so many potential, right? The other one is cyber. I believe cyber is the problem of the next 50 years, right? I, and, and I believe cyber is one of those last, is the last part of the infrastructure stack. This is why we're also so excited about AppCade. The last part of the infrastructure stack that hadn't really yet changed. And it's today early innings in cyber. I mean, if you see, you know, the Z-scalers and the crowd sites of this world, and you see these massive valuations, people say, is it over? I don't know if it's worth X or Y, but I will tell you is that this whole transformation of cyber is something that is really, 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 really just in early innings as well, right? And so those are two huge opportunities that if you wanted to play, and, and if I were to suggest to somebody who has technology background, who understands the industry, where would I go if I were myself? This is where I would go in one of these two areas, right? So. Uh, on the blockchain, it's interesting. At our Communications Infrastructure Summit, which we host every August in Boulder, I remember Dan Caruso, uh, I think it was three years ago, uh, got up on stage and talked about blockchain and how important it was. And it's interesting, even three years ago, that you know somebody like that was, was talking about it, and, and here we are, and it's still very very new but so far all i've done manny is i've opened up a coinbase account that's that's as far as i've gotten so we'll listen what, what i suggest is you you open a coinbase you open an okay coin open blockchain.com open an account you can do it with a few hundred dollars each i, I would buy a couple of nfts you know and uh, just base just small just speaking buy several of the coins you know i, I recommend algorand you know you know you go you go to and just become Become part of this world. And become, go to some of the Put yourself in front of the wave. I'm telling you, that is it. You're going like to get it. wet. This is, look, you think about it. Look in your, in your history, right? Start with the internet. Then virtualization. We stood in front of that virtualization. Then the cloud, right? Then mobility, right? So you just, you, you start, this is just the beginning of the wave. There's two big waves. That is much bigger. And the other wave is cyber. I believe okay. cyber is just a big wave. We've, we've now approached the lightning round. So I'm going to ask you to keep each answer to, to less than 30 seconds. And I'm not going to follow up with any uh, follow-up questions or, or wise guy remarks. But my first question, do you think you, you'll ever want to retire? No, I will never want to retire. I took a break uh, when I was, uh, when I saw Terramark and the first thing I went off the grid, the first thing I really, really realized is that retirement is way overrated. And I don't, cons I don't consider what I'm doing working right now, right? <laughs> basically. So no, I'm never, never going to retire. And then question number two, what's your favorite sources for news on the data center sector today? Where do you, where do you go for your information? So I get, you know, have a good marketing uh, department, but you know, data, data center knowledge, uh, you know, Rich Miller's new publication, I think it's Data Center uh, Frontiers. I mean, uh, 451. Uh, I get a lot of information from you guys, from the analysts, you know, and so reading uh, up on uh, all that. So basically, uh, all of that keeps me pretty up to date. Okay. 
And my last question, uh, what's a better company, Terramark or Sixterra? I think they're both great companies in a different way. I think Sixterra is going to be, right now, we are the third largest data center company, publicly traded data center company in the world. I do believe that the sky is the limit in a very pure play, as I just finished describing. So in a different way, they're both great companies. Great answer. Uh, with that, we'll conclude. Manny, thank you so much for your time. Always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.